Welcome back to One Simple Question, the podcast that asks a basic and everyday question of a person that then delves into their unique and decidedly non-basic answer. I have a special two-part episode for you, with this being part one of the conversation. My guest is Dottie Guy, a colleague of mine who I've known for several years, mainly due to our shared enjoyment of cocktails and banter. When I lived in SF, Dottie would often regale us with stories of her life, though I never really got the full picture until I asked her to sit down for this show. In part one of two, we will learn about Dottie, why she left her hometown, and where the world took her after that. And we'll see how even the best laid plans for life can be complete folly when faced with an international crisis. Hey, Dottie. Thanks so much for joining me. No problem, Shake. How are you doing? I'm good. Um, I'm not trying to do too much these days. I think I overdid it a little bit in the beginning of lockdown. How are you? Um, I'm doing okay. I've been you know, sitting at home. Right now we've got the wildfire, so it's pretty extreme. Um, the sky looks really Blade Runner-ish, so it's, it's weird today. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how has the overall strangeness of our last six months been treating you? Oh man, this, these past six months have been, if you told me last year that I would be here right now, I would have laughed at you. I'm sure almost everyone would have, but yeah, this past six months have been really kind of strange and really weird and in some parts good. Um, in the beginning of all of this, I was under the impression like most people that this wasn't going to last too long and, you know, just, it'll be chill. It'll be fine. And now six months in, we're still here and I don't see an end in sight. So it's kind of like, this is the new normal. We're never going to have the life that we had last year again. And it's, it's out there. Mm, yeah, it's weird. I read something today where someone just said, we have accidentally made the COVID pandemic our new normal and we're just operating in it rather than really trying to conquer it like other countries did, like a New Zealand did um, with aggressive countrywide approaches the UK and the US sort of just said, eh, we'll, we'll try to normalize as much as we can and let you get back to the bar or the pub or something a little too early. Yeah, I really wish that people took this a lot more seriously. I was um, actually did have a socially distanced hang this weekend with some friends. I'm so grateful for that. But it was really hard to be with people who I love and care about and not being able to hug them or even just like shake their hand or be close to them. It was really hard that we haven't gotten it together enough that we can just have these things. Like I'm one of the people who are doing this all by myself. Um, I'm not living with anyone, don't have a partner. And I was mentioning that I have not had non-medical human touch since March 15th. And that yes. was in Hawaii because I paid some newlyweds tab and they gave me an unsolicited hug. I was like, I kind of didn't want one, but I'm like, okay, I'll take it. And that's the last memory of a hug that I have. Uh, what what prompted you to want to pay their tab? Was it just part of your charm or was it something you have always wanted to do? Or is it just a politeness that we're not used to? Um, we were just sitting there talking and it was nice. They were really sweet. Just gotten married and um, we've just been having a good conversation and I was about to leave. I'm like, you know what? They just got married and they're starting their marriage off in weirdness. Let me just pay their tab. I just got my bonus. Didn't really care. I was on vacation. There need to be more people like you, Dottie. And speaking of that, can you tell us a little bit about you? <laughs> I realize I didn't really ask much um, for the people who are listening. I, I know a great deal, but can you give us like a bit of history? Where are you from? What's your family like? 
Sure. Much like the Journey song, I'm just a small town girl living in a lonely world. I'm from Southern Virginia, a little town near the border of North Carolina. Very small. There's only one public high school for the entire county. Everyone knew everyone. Really wasn't a bad place to grow up, but I knew that I didn't want that to be my life. Um, I wanted to live in the city. I loved cities. I loved visiting um, Baltimore when my mom lived there. And I always knew that I didn't want to stay in a small town. Well, hey, I just, as another small town boy, I genuinely curious as to, you know, when did you end up leaving home? So my first foray leaving home was going to basic training. Um, I joined the National Guard in 2000 because I wanted to gain community where I was going to college. I'm daddy's little girl. I was always a good student, never really athletic, which is why everyone was surprised that I joined the National Guard. But I really wanted to do something. I like community and I like being able to build bridges. And it's something I've always liked. And I thought this would be a good opportunity. Plus, you know, a little bit of extra side money would be nice. And I went to Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri for basic training. And that was my first time really away from home. Wow. Yeah, it was it was wild. I was home. I was away really for about six months. Came home, worked as a waitress, and I just kind of did odd jobs. Well, not really odd jobs. I was mostly working in restaurants while I was waiting for college to start in winter of 2001. I wanted to take some time off so I could just, you know, do nothing and be. And then 9-11 happened and <laughs> changed my entire life, much like a lot of people, but mine very directly. Can you tell us about that? What happened after 9-11? I deferred college until winter 2001 because I wanted to just do nothing. Um, I'd had six months of basic training, running around, being ordered, being told what to do, having to wake up at certain times. And I just wanted to kind of work a little bit, stay at home, give myself some more time to like kind of mentally prepare to go to college. And then I was working at Shoney's, shout out to Shoney's, that morning. And we didn't have any TVs in there, but I kept getting um, updates from our cooks in the kitchen who were listening to the radio telling me about everything that was happening. The first one was, hey, a plane hit the World Trade Center. I was like, oh, that sucks. And just kind of kept going because it just sounded like an accident, like an unfortunate accident. It was like, there's nothing I can do. It's awful, but what can I do? And then they told me another plane hit. And I was like, are you sure you're not listening to a repeat? And then I don't know how much time it passed because it felt like time was moving incredibly slow and fast at the same time. They pulled me to the side and said a plane hit the Pentagon. And that's when I was like, oh, Okay. I called my sister and said, if it's camouflage, throw it in my army bag. Because I wasn't sure what was going to happen, but I had a feeling that I was going to get called up because I was in the Virginia National Guard. And technically, even though the mailing address for the Pentagon is DC, it's in the state of Virginia. Mm -hmm. So I got called up that day, ran home, changed into my uniform, said goodbye to my parents, my brother, my sister, this guy I was kind of dating. And that was the last day I ever really lived at home. You're, I mean, 18, 19 years old at this stage, 9-11's happening, you're throwing everything that matters to your deployment into a bag and heading out, saying goodbye to everybody. Did you think about like, am I going to go to school after this? Or were you just like laser focused on, okay, I need to now go serve and, and execute on this thing that I've been trained to do? I was laser focused. I didn't have time to think about it because this thing was unfolding. It was just like now, like this is an incredibly unprecedented event and no one knew really what to do. So all I had to do was focus on making sure that my people were safe and that if there's another threat that I protect, I do my job. College was not even a thought in my mind at that time. 
I wish that I could say that the word unprecedented was a rarely used thing, especially today, but I feel like I hear that word all the time and it makes me feel like the world that we live in is just going through so many wildly unique experiences that constantly happen to us. It's, it's as if we'll never really have like precedented times anymore. So so what did you do? So you, you got called up after 9-11. Where did you go? So I initially was in Virginia Beach um, and then we went to a National Guard base in central virginia then we went, we were shipped to northern virginia and i was there for about a year um, mostly just doing secu- perimeter security kind of boring but to be honest war in the military is just a lot of boring with minutes and moments of excitement and it was just kind of like okay i'm doing my job a few kind of sketchy moments um especially when it came to um like who had access no one really was supposed to know where we were. So it's kind of like, okay, why is this person coming down the road? So there was a lot of like getting ready, but fortunately nothing happened during that deployment that was memorable. And I feel like no deployment should be memorable for the wrong reasons. Right. What was your job? I was military police, which was a shock to everyone who's ever met me. You were the police? Yes. Um, I had no real desire for law enforcement in my life. When I was a kid, I wanted to be a lawyer and a judge. And actually, the reason why I became an MP is because I am not one to be challenged. When I initially signed up, I was supposed to be an administrative specialist. And when they assigned me to my unit, because I wanted to be assigned to one close to where I was going to school. So I was in a unit in Virginia Beach. I was going to go to Hampton University, the real HU. Sorry, Howard. (laughs) Um, They're going to eat me up after that. So I got assigned to a military police unit. And one of the things you can do in the National Guard that is unique is you can drill with your unit before you join, before you go to basic training, at least. And I got a chance to meet the MPs that I'd be serving with, meet the people. And I was the only one who was in this just before basic training program that was not an MP. And they were like, well, we're going to go do fun things. You have fun with our paperwork. I was like, okay, I don't mind doing paperwork. I'm good at it. And then they just kind of egged me on and egged me on. I'm like, you know what? Fine. And I ended up changing my MOS and becoming military police just because I don't, I back down from many challenges. No, you don't mess with Dottie. I learned that in hanging out with you in California. So you're in Virginia the whole time as an MP? Like, was that just your deployment? The first one I was completely in Virginia. After that first deployment, when it was starting to wrap up, I had to think about what was going to happen next. I didn't know what the world would bring, but I also knew that I really liked living in the D.C. area and didn't really want to go to Virginia Beach. So I ended up moving to Baltimore to stay with an aunt. I moved there and was there for six months, worked in restaurants again while I tried to figure out what to do with my life. And then then um, we got the call, I think February 6th, 2003. And I had a little bit of a headache. And I remember my first sergeant calling, saying, how you doing? How's your head? I'm like, well, I feel like I'm going to have a headache as soon as I'm done talking to you. <laughs> And he's like, yeah, you should sit down. And he read me my orders that we were to get ready to go to, I think they said Southwest Asia. Southwest Asia is not a term I've ever heard in my entire life. Yeah. As a person from South Asia, as a, as a person whose family is from South Asia and knowing Southeast Asia and all, no one in their right mind would ever call it that. But I appreciate them trying to just hide the fact that they were saying something else to you, apparently. Yes. So I was like, oh, cool. I'm go- I thought initially thought I was going to Afghanistan. But then um, we got word that we were going to go to Baghdad and be prison guards, which was 
something that I never thought would be a thing that I would ever do in my life. Um, yeah, hold on. You were in Baghdad as a prison guard. That's fascinating that you've said that. Um, what was that like? What is being a prison guard in Baghdad for the U.S. Army like? So initially, I went late. My company deployed in April. In fact, it was April 15th. It was two days before my birthday. And I couldn't go with them because I was sick. And I had to wait to become deployable. Um, I got there in September of 2003. And it was it was a shock. Um, one of the first things I remember, the long flight, we flew from Maryland to Kuwait was the first leg of it. And we had mechanical problems. They ended up spending the night in Ireland, which was so much fun. They actually made the bar close because we were not going to stop drinking. <laughs> you got locked in, is what they call it. Pretty much. They were like, yeah. And then we were supposed to be able to drink until Germany. And they're like, no, you all shut down a bar in Ireland. You are now cut off. So that was fun. And then we got to Kuwait and I had to get dressed in my uniform because we weren't allowed to travel initially in our uniforms. And I remember the flight in. I remember only the worst part of it was they don't tell you that they go in and then they have to do like a maneuver to come in. And it's like, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit. And the next thing I remember is them opening the doors. And I was one of the first people off the plane. I don't know how hot it was. It was probably like 120 degrees. And we were landing on freshly paved asphalt. And that smell is something that I will never forget. Oof. It was a lot. Yeah, that's like an assault on the senses, the way you describe it. Yeah, and it was just like, okay, this is real. This is happening. And I was there for a couple of months. It was really unique. We were the guards for the high-value detainees. For people of my generation, maybe some a little bit after, they know that they had this thing called a deck of cards. Saddam Hussein was the ace of spades. His sons were the um, were also aces. I don't remember which ones they were. And we guarded everyone who was captured in the deck up until Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein was captured when I was in Kuwait on my way home. So I will never not be salty about that. This unit who came in after us, who had no rapport with the people at all, got to have this opportunity to be this part of history. I mean, we were part of history too, but also they got the target. And we're like, oh, okay. Well, did they? Did anything happen with them? Like, did they get like notoriety at all? And then you guys were like, oh, that could have been us. Um, there was a few people. I think they wrote like they were in like a Vanity Fair article. I need to dig it up to see what it was, but it was interesting. We had our fair share of people as well. Yeah. I don't want you to have to go into too much of it. I understand that's probably like a really strange time in your life, but I'm actually very fascinated with kind of what happened after, because I feel like we could sit and talk about Iraq for a good while, but you're not in the army anymore and you work with me in a tech company in California. How did you get home from all that? What was being home like? What was the reintroduction to society like for you after a couple of months and after just being you know, in military? So the first introduction home was jarring. I went from a place where the biggest decisions I had to make were, do I run today or do I go to the gym? My choices were incredibly binary. Like there were not many choices to what I can do in my life. And honestly, it was kind of comforting because the thing is, they don't want you to have to focus on too much because your job is staying alive and keeping others alive. And coming home, one of the first things I did was go to a mall. And it was one of the worst experiences of my life. I went to go look for a pair of shoes 
And I could not choose. There were so many different choices of color, style. Do I want this material, that material? It was like my brain was overloaded. And I finally sat down in the lady footlocker and cried and picked up three pairs of shoes that I liked and made the person, uh, made the salesperson choose for me. Cause I'm like, I, I can't do this. And that was really hard. And to this day, if I have too many choices, I'll kind of just break down. And it's also why whenever I make my mind up to do something, I have to go quickly because if I second guess myself, it might not ever get done. I mean, my closet right now is an example of that because I couldn't decide what I wanted to do with it. And now I still have three boxes that are not unpacked. And I've been here since June. <laughs> were, you, were you at all like that before the army or would you squarely kind of place the life that you had there as to the reason you, you have this like issue with choices? I don't remember ever having an issue like this. I mean, I know that I was never indecisive, but also I never really had a lot of choices either as a kid. It wasn't like I had infinite choices. Living in a small town, having somewhat of a strict father, he wasn't so, so strict that I couldn't choose my own clothing or anything. I was really good at making choices. I could do things like that. But coming home and having to make choices on small things, it was like, why does my brain have to think about this? This is dumb. I don't want to have to think about this. And there's so many different things I can do. So it kind of brought about some impulsivity with me. And it's not bad impulsive. It's just that if there's something I really want to do. I have to do it quickly or I'll second guess myself. And being that I was in a war zone and even with 9-11, you can't be indecisive. Because sometimes if you're indecisive or you second guess yourself, there are consequences to that. And I'm fortunate to never have had to deal with those consequences. But being in that state of alert, it kept me there. And I'm still somewhat there, even with years of therapy. If I have choices that seem minor, my brain goes haywires. Like either I'll break down and won't do it or I'll ask someone else to do it for me. I'm hiring a closet organizer because it's, I, I, I can't. <laughs> I think we've all been highly aware of issues when it comes to veterans coming back. It's weird to transfer your life so aggressively from one thing to another. You know, when you came back here, did you work with like veterans groups at all? Did you interact with other veterans? Did you guys try to help each other? Were there old timers that helped you out? And then did you help new people coming back? Like what's the ecosystem of that? Like what's the community like? So I started dating someone who I'd served with, and we kind of had our own little bubble. We had the people we served with, but I really didn't, I didn't want to feel connected to them. I don't know why. I just didn't, I wanted to push past that part of my life. And after I stopped working, I worked at the Pentagon shortly after that as well for a year, which was another, that's another story for another day. <laughs> um, I just really had a feeling about the military and about spending and it was really hard for me to want to connect to that community at all. When I was in Baghdad, I was part of the armor shortage. For those who are unfamiliar, they didn't have enough armored plates or armored vehicles for everyone. You can find a lot of evidence of folks using Coke cans to fix bullet holes in planes. If I recall correctly, my unit had to fashion armor for some of our vehicles. And my boyfriend at the time gave me his plates because my first caravan in Baghdad, I didn't have them. And I sat there with a loaded weapon three feet away from someone who I had to monitor. 
and it was one of the scariest experiences of my life. Okay, what happens if something happens to this vehicle? What if we get ambushed? And also, I have this person in front of me who I have orders to, I have to decide whether I have to harm this man. And it changed me forever. It made me really think about a lot of things, and it was hard. And I'm really, I'm thankful for him to give me his plates, but also I worried about him constantly if he went out and did something and he didn't have his. That's also part of my decision paralysis too, is that I've had to make some really hard calls out there. And that was the hardest one I think I had to make. I'm like reminded of a quote, and it's going to sound weird where it's coming from, but it's from the TV show MASH, which sometimes has really poignant quotes. And, and I remember the character saying, war isn't hell. Like, cause someone said like, war is hell. And, and the person said like, war isn't hell, war is war. Hell is hell. And of the two, war is a lot worse. Yeah, I had a very different reality than most people of my age. Yeah. Let's talk a bit about when you came back. What would you do? I mean, you were, you were coming back from a war zone. You're a very educated person. By the way, did, did you ever get to finish college? No. Oh, <laughs> I never wow. finished college. Good for you. Yeah, I ended up landing in good places all the time. So it really felt like, okay. My life experience is actually more than what college could give me. College would have been great if I were 18, but in my years of learning and having all these experiences and what I learned in Peace School, I decided that I didn't want to go to college after a while. I tried, I really tried, and I ended up hating it. So I decided not to continue my education traditionally. So my, when I got home, I worked at the Pentagon and ended up hating it after a while because I saw all the spending that was happening and not going towards the current effort where we had no money. So it really made me feel disillusioned and I kind of separated myself from that world. I um, worked at a nonprofit for a while, which was a lot of fun. So if I never left DC, I would probably still be working at this nonprofit. Public health is something that's really important to me. And this was a anti-tobacco nonprofit, and I got to see all these cool things and all the work that's being done and the people who care about this work. So it was really amazing to see and be able to do good in the world. And that's been something that's been important to me in every job I've had since working there, because it made me realize that I want, I like money, but I also like helping people too. Hmm. Um, in fact, working at Dropbox now is like one of the places that I can make a solid living, but also help people in my own little way. It's been really interesting having this life and having like not a real traditional path and learning as I go and thankfully having support and people who understand me, even though I am very hard to understand on the base level. But if you people see past like my identities and just get to know me as a person, they can see where I'm coming from and why, why I do the things that I do. And fortunately, I have enough people in my life who can see that and they've helped me or they've kind of led me in a way because I, I, I was lost for a very long time. Um, even when I started at Dropbox, I was, still, I was still a little bit lost because I didn't know who I wanted to. I still didn't know exactly who I was and where I wanted to be. And I still had that pressure of, well, I didn't go to college, so... Why do people see the worth in me? Because I went, I was surrounded by people who went to MIT and Stanford and had lots of people like who went to UC Berkeley and all these other schools questioning how I got to where I was. And it made me really insecure. I mean, I would argue, Dottie, that you 
went through much more of an aggressive learning experience than any of us who did like a classic university thing. Cause I mean, our hardest times were probably the weird dorm rooms we had or drinking too much on the first time that we like learned how to drink or obviously there's other bits in college that aren't particularly awesome, but you were in a war zone. Like you had a live weapon strapped to you regularly. You were, you know, in the line of fire to some degree. It's almost like what did those people do to have the tenacity that you did? Cause you kind of earned it and we're all maybe, maybe just trying to work on ours. Yeah. And I see that, but it's also because I'm in such a minority. I mean, at any given time, less than, I think the current steps, like less than half of 1% of people are serving on active duty, which is down from like, I want to say 14%, please fact check me on that one, um, around World War One, World War II. Like there's so many more people who served back then. And we have this generational divide between who served and who didn't. There's still people who have this really big, like, I love the military, hua hua, and they still wear their hats. They'll wear a t-shirt that says, you know, what or they went to or what branch they served in. They have tattoos on their arms, like showing like all these different things about their military identities. And then you have me who, I mean, I appreciate what the military did for me, but I didn't exactly like it um, because there were a lot of things that happened that I wish never did. I don't wear any military gear. I'm highly against camouflage as fashion. Um, I tried. I don't like it. <laughs> Green's not, that, that shade of green isn't my color anymore. I, and I also want to show people that not everyone in the military is like that broken, hurt mockery type person. Mm-hmm. I mean, I get some really weird and offensive questions about my military service. Um, like, have I ever killed anyone? My answer used to be like, well, they're still young. <laughs> God, uh, awful thing to ask somebody. <laughs> oh, yeah, I get, asked, I get asked that quite a lot. I used to, at least. It doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me. I just feel like there are sometimes the people who are like the most sensational and they just want to know the, the weirdest things about your life. Yeah, I actually had one guy in a bar ask me, if, was I ever raped in the military? <sighs> I didn't know him. I met him 10 minutes before. I mean, did you did you punch him shortly after that? I didn't. I actually made it a learning opportunity. I told him, like, what makes you think that's an appropriate question to ask you? Like, well, it's in the news. And he tried to go on about taxpayer money. I'm like, well, your dollars been all these other things. Like, would you ask someone who's on a scholarship to college if they were raped on campus? Would you ask this bartender who you're paying your money to, has she ever been raped in this bar? That's something that's incredibly personal. And it's something that even though it's a newsworthy thing right now, it's traumatizing for some people. And you might, you got lucky that you asked me and that I am here and I am not drunk enough to hit you. And also not drunk enough to be like, you know what, fuck this guy. I'm here to teach you this because I don't want you to encounter anyone else and make them have this experience again. Punching him probably would have been the better answer in this time because my friend was also the bartender. She would not have kicked me out, but you know. I guess you live and you learn. Hurting him in the brain actually hurts more than hurting him in the face. That's a good point. And I like that phrase. Dottie, I want to ask you one final question about this and then end this part of our conversation because we're going to do another conversation with you that's going to be really important. But I want to sort of close the chapter here, if you will. The last question I just have is, is something you've, you've sort of alluded to a couple of times. I've gleaned a lot, but I would love for you to just kind of say it more plainly. 
what should we know about someone like you and, and all the others you know who serve? Much like everything else, well, we're not a monolith. Not everyone who joined joined because of like the more sensational ways. Like a lot of people assume because I'm a black woman that I joined to get away from like an abusive home or to get out of like a inner city place. So I'm like, nope, that's not me. Take the time to talk to someone about their service and about how they how it shaped them, but don't stop the conversation there. Ask us what we're doing with those skills now because like me, I use my military skills to get me forward in life and not just use them when I need them. We have so much to offer in this world. And it's a shame that people put us in boxes and assume that, oh, you served in the military, you went to war, so you must have PTSD. And if you have PTSD, you must be violent. PTSD is not a marker of violence. I have PTSD, I'm not a violent person. The worst thing that I do is fall asleep on my sofa and get sad. Just take the time, listen, learn, and help others. We're not a charity case. We just happen to have a different job a long time ago. To be really honest with you, I don't get to interact enough with people who have served in any military. Perhaps it's my industry, or maybe my bubble, or some other demographic lacking on my end. But one thing I never thought about was actually how the military helped people get to where they are now. How those skills, those experiences, those trials formed the person in front of me today. I realize Dottie can't speak for all veterans, as she noted that they aren't a monolith. But her path has led her, albeit in a roundabout way, to what most would deem a very successful life. Dottie shared a lot about her fears, PTSD, and thoughts on military spending. But that's not all that she and I caught up on when we chatted. In fact, we took a turn from her past to the present and future of her as a black woman in the United States. So join me next week as Dottie and I tackle police brutality, Black Lives Matter, and how her experience in the military police showed her exactly what's wrong with the US system today. And As we are less than a month away from Election Day in the United States, if you're an American citizen, please make sure you're registered to vote and have a safe way to exercise your choice. That's it for today's story. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, you can subscribe to get the latest updates anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you have a moment and you're feeling generous, please leave a review. I'd really appreciate it, and it helps me understand how to make this show even better. For more info on me and this concept, you can visit our website at onesimplequestion.co. One Simple Question is hosted by me, Abhishek Lahoti. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you tune in again soon, and bye for now.